Welcome to 12 Days of Edition Wars, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and playstyles of all the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't, what led to better games, as well as what didn't, and we talk about it all. This series features a deep dive into the blue cover DMGR series of books. What advice can we take from these books and use in our current games? On this, the fourth day of Edition Wars, my DM gave to me the campaign sourcebook and catacomb guide. This second edition AD&D sourcebook was written by Janelle Jaquies and William W. Connors and published in 1990. Uh, DMGR 1 was the first in a series of nine nine DM-focused books for second edition AD&D. You may recognize these as the blue faux leather softcover books. Uh, We're starting today with chapter six, uh, Creating the World. Uh, And as we need to finish this uh, post-toasties, we may be uh, going through it a little faster than we have done before. Or not. Promises, promises. I said may. I'm hedging. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah no it's all good i mean the thing is the material in this book is so good that it, it really uh, is yeah it's like, worth it the, there's no well we're not going to come to anything in creating the world that's actually meaningfully outdated mm-hmm. um in so far as anything has changed i think the main change is the taste for how um you know, magic weirdness and you know alienness has increased over the years. Right. Um, I think that like this is written for very not gonzo settings, very grounded and close to historical earth, mm-hmm. right? In a lot of ways, uh, and they they aren't sort of pushing as hard. I don't think we may see that I'm wrong about this. I don't think they're going to push as hard against um, human centrism as you might see in um, a setting written, you know, since then, you know, more, more recently than 1990. Yeah. I, I mean, the, the funny thing is like uh, the early editions, right. They actually were based on the sort of gonzo science fantasy. Right. I mean, right. the first published adventure, technically speaking, was published in the Blackmore little Brown book, oh, which was oh. supplement, what, two or three or supplement two. Right. Cause Greyhawk was supplement one anyway. Uh, right. And it was the um, temple of the frog. Right. And the temple of the frog Spoiler alert for anybody who, you know, okay, this was released in like 1978. So anyway. Uh, Even if Frog, most of our listeners won't have played it or read it. Right. Temple of the Frog is is um, like it has space aliens and, and laser guns, right? And then, of course, sure. uh, in first edition, there was Expedition to the Barrier Peaks, which was, again, spoiler alert, um, you know, a spaceship crashed in the barrier peaks, mountains of Greyhawk, and you're going yep. to investigate. And there are robots and laser guns and all sorts of things that go wrong and aliens. And, you know, so this is a trope that has been part of the game since the earliest of days. Um, and it right. sort of at the end of, of first edition, it, it swung away from that. And then so second edition stayed away from it and went sort of more medieval pseudo-realism, so to speak. And that's kind of the tack that these books are taking, or at least that this book takes. Right. And there's sort of, that's one of the big divides in my view between 
on the one hand, your Greyhawk and Mistara side, mm-hmm. and on the other, your Forgotten Realm side. Uh, because while there's a lot of ridiculousness in Forgotten Realms, uh, I, I've never had the impression from what I've seen that uh, Ed Greenwood's flavor of ridiculousness is, you know, your Gonzo spaceship. Right. 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 Um, yeah. But, it's, you know, more, I, it's more high, high magic, high fantasy ridiculousness right. than it is laser guns and possible aliens. I mean, the most you get is, is the sort of fifth edition uh, right. and I guess third edition take on aberrations, right. Where they come from yeah. the far realm. And so that's kind of alien, like, or great old one, you know, Cthulhu. Well, well right. And, and your, your Githyanki yeah. may have right. what sure. amounts to a spaceship mm-hmm. in an right. astral skiff in, yeah. uh, in fourth yeah. or fifth. Right? But even in second edition spell jammer, right. All of those ships, it right. was more like a, fantastical fancified magical boat than it was a spaceship right. with aliens and laser guns yeah the, the sense of the thing is more sort of um uh, horatio hornblower mm-hmm. than um right. you know buck rogers right um, but you know i'd love to see someone really do a lot of connecting the dots between what um Gygax and Arneson and other early to mid TSR writers in over those decades were doing with what was going on in Marvel and DC comics as mm. those as they were shifting from um, you know Silver Age to Bronze Age to Iron Age, um, and you know there aren't that many like Iron Age style settings for, for D&D, and that's probably for the best. Uh, <laughs> though I think that there's probably a strong showing of homebrew settings that, that fit in that, that are just like, uh, Watsi has no interest in touching that with the 10-foot pole. Right. Yeah. Yep. Anyway, that's just me being interested in what inspires people and sort of zeitgeist. Yeah, and I and and I do think it's an int- I mean, you know, the purpose of this podcast is to talk about all the different editions yeah. and how things have changed and all that. So well, I think I, it's a, I think it's worthy part of the conversation. Right. Um, and I also have to point to like your your Thunder the Barbarian and your um Masters of the Universe and Shira. Mm-hmm. Like right. th- those are very much in a in a science fantasy space. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um right. even though the characters are swinging swords. They sometimes also shoot laser beams out of those swords. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. You know, and those in some ways though are post-apocalyptic, not right. They're, they're, they're more uh, like, here's this stuff exists because it existed one time in the past and the people now are using it more right, so look, than they are, you know, this is, this is a different Tom show episode that we did just a little while ago. <laughs> <laughs> I was on it. Yes. Um, because we, we did cover, mm-hmm. you know, almost every D and D setting is post-apocalyptic in, in some way, because right. they need a mythic past to point back to. And, you know, I, I still think that a lot of that has to do with the medieval be- imagination being shaped by, um, Imperial Rome mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Republican Rome for that matter. Right. 
Well, and you know, here's the thing, like we're talking about first and second edition a lot right now uh, in basic D&D with Mistara and all that, but even through fourth edition, you know, in, in, in fifth edition, of course, but in fourth edition, you know, they gave, the, when they would do a setting, they would give you the 10 interesting things about the setting or whatever, the 10, the 10 facts that you really need to know about the setting. And one of the facts of the default standard, just D&D world, which in fourth edition was the Ninter Vale, is the world is ancient. Like your world is ancient and and that has to be the case. That's actually a callback all the way to original D and D because that was one of Gygax's things, right? Is the world is ancient because if it's not ancient, how can you go in and plunder those ancient tombs and ancient dungeons? If the world isn't ancient, then those things don't exist. And since right. the game is predicated on those things existing, it, it follows then that the world must be ancient. Well, right, and and you've got you know, uh, Guy X also showing the influence of uh, Jack Vance's Dying Earth, mm-hmm. right? right. Um, you know, your, your, your Fritz Lieber, um, your Robert E. Howard, uh, very much showing up in that sort of thread of thought. Uh, but it's interesting that um, Atlas Games is releasing uh, Plangea, which mm-hmm. is a prehistoric setting you know it's, right. a, it's a young world uh where you know dinosaurs are very much an active presence right in right. the setting mm-hmm. and so they're, they're really diving into what that means for setting building right um i i get to read the uh like pre-kickstarter um packet of just Here's our cool setting. Here's a bunch of cool stuff we're doing. Um, sort of pitch document. I guess it's not really a pitch document. Um, the right word for what that is is not coming to me. But it was a it was a cool intro to Plangea, and uh, I will want to pick that up at some point. Though I, I think I was uh, a bit skint during the Kickstarter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've been seeing that around a lot. So hopefully it uh, delivers a really good product, and we'll see it more. Yeah, that'd be cool. Um, so we should at some point actually talk about the chapter. <laughs> what? Um, what you say? How are we on the fourth episode in a single book? What? <laughs> perish the thought. Um, yes. So in in a way that is not really at all unlike the uh, fifth ed DMG, uh, the, the getting started section is sort of a lot of writing prompts. Um, mm-hmm. And... Uh, Campaign overview is similarly going to just uh, frame a bullet list of questions. It's not necessarily getting into here are the implications of answers, just here are questions you need to answer for your setting. Right. Um, And, you know, getting into, hey, what does uh, it mean for a sentient race to be dominant over other sentient races? do you need that? Uh, is e- even that question is a little bit out of scope for what they're trying to do here, right? Um, yeah, in fact, they're really just giving a hey, you're going to create a setting. Think about this. I mean, they do start. To be fair, they start with with the the old adage of start small because if you start small yep. and build out you're you're going to more likely build a good foundation and then have nice things on top of it but then they give these sort of 
overarching questions more as a thought trigger than yep. as a, hey, write the answers to these questions and suddenly, today you'll have a setting. That's not really what it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I agree with that. Um, but th- I mean, there is a good set of questions. Um, I-, I like that they include what kind of really exotic terrain features exist in the world. Um, right, yeah. Because I've been reading settings for a long time, but uh, you don't see people do uh, sort of really alien badlands often enough, which is something that really jumped out at me when I was playing Massive Chalice. Like mm-hmm. A lot of the battlefields you see in that game are just extra weird. This is a desert, but the things that grow or exist here are terrible for you and very strange, and it's fun. Right. Um Right. In a way that would feel very much at home to your your fourth edition terrain powers mm-hmm. and terrain hazards. Right, right. And and this this book actually does a quite a, a decent job of talking about the different biomes on a planet, the different general categories of biomes. It, you know, it's not a biology textbook, it's not an ecology textbook. So you 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 only get a certain amount of detail, but um, yeah. you do get just the sort of here are things that you should think about. You know, if you, if you create a, a, an entire planet, that planet can have different types of areas on it, or it can have one single type of area, a la Star Wars, right? You know, Tatooine, yep. giant desert, that's it. Uh, yep. Hoth, giant, you know, basically Arctic area, that's it, right? Yep. Um, or you can be more Earth-like and have different latitudes that of, you know, generally support different types of terrain or you don't, I mean, like the, the, one of the things that they do in here that I like is they do say at some point, I can't find the actual quote, but they say, basically, this is a fantasy setting. And so while it's important to think about these questions, you know, whatever answer that you choose is going to be okay, right? For yeah. for your setting, whatever your setting that you want it to be. But it's important to know if you're choosing to make an entire planet a desert, to understand the ramifications of that and what the what the other alternatives could be. And so it's a yep. decent section. I like it. Yeah. Um, I, also, I just I appreciate the discussion of realism versus fantasy, mm-hmm. and sort of the idea that there are multiple. Um, possible points on the, the magic axiom mm-hmm. right, right? Um, and also don't the don't overdo it advice right the remember that a fantastic world feature that is found everywhere will soon be treated as commonplace and will rapidly lose its distinctiveness yeah right um, though you i mean if you understand how to incorporate its commonness and its universality mm-hmm. that becomes its own different special thing. Sure. Right. Mm-hmm. In the sense that like we all have a total access to all of the world's libraries in our pockets all the time now. Right. And that's created a different world. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, it, it has made that, that kind of magic commonplace for us, but it's just different. It isn't a bad setting. I mean, our setting sucks, but not because of that. Yeah. You know, 
I mean, I wish I could magically read all those books as as quickly as I could access them. On the yeah, internet. yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, um, I'm ready for downloadable skills. Just hold. Yeah, skills. that would be great. I know kung fu. Anyway, that would be uh, nice. Yeah. So, yeah. So then it talks about. Um, it's funny because in in some of these things, like it has a whole sort of section on planting forests. And the sort of realism of how high on a mountain a tree could actually grow yep, uh, and things like that. Um, and it talks about large scale details. As I said, it, they, they sort of make a point of we're telling you these things about and we're telling you how they work on our planet so that if you choose to change that on your on your planet, on your setting, in your fantasy world, then you know the ramifications of that. You know what makes it special or fantastic. And then you can either highlight those things or you can choose to ignore them. Yep. And I think that's incredibly valuable Mm -hmm. because, I mean, a lot of the people reading this for the first time, I know of which I speak here, are 13 and won't have had any of these ideas before and haven't yet been taught like – basic research in high school right? Um, or middle school or whatever, like they're, they're still getting there. And just the, the idea of, Oh yeah. Trees don't actually grow above a certain altitude. How about that? Mm-hmm. Huh? Right. Um, and for that, for that same reason, I enjoy a couple pages later when they have an entire flora and fauna section and a and an ecology little sort of mini ecology lesson. Uh-huh. Because of course, as a biologist, I ate that stuff up, even though I already had been exposed to it in, in, to some yeah. extent, right? Like I enjoy seeing that in a in a game book because it's right up my alley. Yeah. Um. And you know, this is very much an aspect of trying to ground the world in believability uh, like the whole way through. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Um, th- this is not, Hey, I have no idea how the monsters in this dungeon get food and none of this dungeon could possibly make sense. So right. who cares? This right. is, you know, we're going to think it through uh, as best we can. And then because we've done the first 50% of the work, the audience will be willing to grant us the other 50% or whatever. Right, right. Right. Yeah. This is also, this was written at the time when there's a sort of shift uh, from that sort of Gygaxian ecology where you can have, you know, the, the, the caverns of the unknown that each contain, you know, a different type of creature and who knows how they were eating or getting rid of their waste products or whatever and into a, you're having, you know, products released called the ecology of, you know, this area in, in forgotten realms. Right. Um, yep. And so this sort of, this sort of adds, uh, adds to that. Uh, I think there's a fair meeting in the middle, just like there's a fair meeting in the middle between um, the sort of going truly realistic medieval, you know, whatever, and having a lot of magic in there or going truly post-apocalyptic science fantasy and having a lot of sort of more realistic type of weapons available and armors and things like that, you know, just like anything in D&D, there's a fine line between you know, what becomes 
good or not as good for every different group. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, you know, I I like to see all this stuff on populations. um, Mm -hmm. And I think that probably, I'm not digging into it enough to be sure, but I suspect very strongly that uh, a lot of the phrasing of uh, things on these different populations would be regarded as very problematic now. That's frankly hard to avoid. Sure. Um, so I'm not going to necessarily hold up that specific text, but I think that there, I think that there's probably still an intent to hold them all up as cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if there might be some judging words along the way. Yeah. And, and just for the audience, it's talking about uh, cultures in, in various regions and what a nomadic lifestyle is like and, and what a barbarian is in game terms and what feudal culture would be. And it, and it sort of talks about why you're not necessarily going to have in one valley, both of those things coexisting, right? Um, and I think it's, as you say, there are probably, I, if I look hard enough, I could find plenty of problematic things in here just because of the time this book was written. But yep. um, I think it actually does a pretty good job of, of, of as you said, being respectful of, of it. It's not uh, talking about barbarians and nomads as lesser, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, when, when anytime you talk about that uh, in the '90s, you're going to use the word primitive, right? Um, or I should say, they're going to use the word primitive, and they do here several times. And that's not necessarily. Yep. It has different connotations nowadays. Right. Um, it had those connotations before. It's just that a lot of people didn't know it had those connotations or didn't care, and now we do. So. Right. Um, but my, my point here is that it's, it's not presenting it as, oh, look at those barbarians. It's presenting it as if you have a part of your setting that is a rather barbaric culture, right, or a nomadic culture, you need to think about certain things regarding that region, right? You're not, you're not going to have a big, giant, civilized city in the middle of that region necessarily. Yeah. Um, then they get into building cultural character, which is very much about um, synthesizing uh, your, your fantasy races and the, the culture you want to build with some real world culture to deliver something. Um, this might still be pretty a pretty divisive topic, but um, I, I mean just dropping the word oriental is not going to be okay for uh, a lot of modern readers. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Uh, so this text uh, would be written differently now, though a lot of, I think it's, I think the point the writers are trying to make is still pretty valid. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they've just phrased it in ways that are quite dated. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, for example, they talk about if you have a culture in your setting that doesn't bathe, uh, you know, there there might be a reason for that, right? Like they, they might be afraid of evil water spirits because of something in their 
that that group's history or you know perhaps they don't bathe and th- there's an inconsequential reason like it doesn't matter why but the offshoot is they have become master chemists and perfumers right like yep. there's something culturally there that is a benefit or that is a, a little piece of knowledge that you can use to highlight something that that culture brings to the world that is valued. Yeah. So even if they're not using the best language, what they're trying to do is support the creation of cultures that are varied and valued. Yep. That is absolutely true. Uh, I definitely like that. Um, and so, so population centers are kind of what you were talking about um, mm. with, with settlements. And as we've seen in the, Fifth edition DMG. This is a topic you can talk about at at any length you choose, and there'll be more to say. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, Uh, yeah. And and, as a result, almost you know they don't spend very much time on it at all, really. Right. Um, Choosing to spend their words on on different things. Yep. Um, It it gets two paragraphs. Um, I I don't know if we're going to see it come up again uh, any later. Maybe not. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, a walk through history uh, can kind of be summed up with uh, some of the questions that they call out here. Where did it all come? From? Where did it all come from? And what has happened to and because of you know, people in the past? Right. Well, and the very first sentence of that section actually speaks to what we were talking about before about yep. most fantasy settings being post apocalyptic or ancient in age uh, to some extent because the first sentence here is the ruins that adventurers are so fond of looting were once the homes temples castles and strongholds of folk from long ago right so you're not you're not uh you know pillaging the homes of people living right now you're pillaging the homes of people that lived you know three thousand years ago right and I'd have a hard time pointing to uh, a time that's happened in a campaign I've seen in the last 20 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but really the point of this section is if you want to create a dungeon or an old temple or something, if you have an idea of what its purpose was when it was uh, just being built, then you can actually provide a much richer environment for for the party to adventure in. Yeah, and and here again, this is very good material that's going to get re- reviewed and expanded in the fifth edition DMG really mm-hmm. nicely. Yeah, like, um, th- this points forward to that very very cleanly. Yeah. Um, Yeah, you know, a lot of you know, additional sort of uh, buildings and signs of intelligent life, such as roads, forts, castles, temples, the whole deal. Um, um, under uh, Behold the Works of Man. And yeah. it's, you know, I, I have read that uh, a lot of this material was cut at the last minute from the second at DMG mm-hmm. and it's very easy to see how that would be true. Yep. Uh, yeah. Cause this book would have added, you know, a hundred pages to that 
to that book and uh, they just didn't yep. have the page count. Yep. I agree with that. Um, and then social structure and social classes, yep. um, you know, gives you a very basic overview of, you know, the different socioeconomic classes uh, talks about countries and where countries come from and, you know, whether it's because of physical isolation or some other isolation, whether it's because of leadership or whatnot, um, you know, talks, talks about war, what happens when two different regions clash. And then it gives the uh, sort of uh, the, uh, the list of different types of governments and what the, the words are that technically describe those governments and then what those words mean. Um, this is almost. Oh yeah, I love this page so much. Yeah. It, it, it's very much a, a first edition callback, uh, you know, because yep. the first edition DMG uh, had had a giant list of this, and and it's always nice uh, because you know the thing is, again, if you're reading this when you're very young and you have not really been exposed to other types of government other than your own. Yep. <laughs> then it's a sort of eye-opening to say, wow, you know, all those types of governments exist and have been tried and, you know, so. Uh, There's a yeah, section absolutely. here on taxation. <laughs> yep. It's, uh, you can hardly be surprised considering mm-hmm. how much time and energy this got in the first head DMG. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, this was definitely, you know, a big vocab lesson for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I first got this book, um, but th- the section on good and evil societies, uh, I would pr- pretty comfortably just not talk about because I don't like alignment uh, as applied to uh, people in yeah. societies. You know, like, the thing, the thing is this section isn't even really about alignment. Let me, let me just read you one passage yeah. from this section in complex, realistic societies, both good and evil exist and battle within bounds of the same society. Yeah. Right. Like that, yeah. that right and, there is trying to tell you that yeah, even if you provide an alignment, if you, if you assign an alignment to a country, it's going to be somewhat false because even within the bounds of a single country, there are people that are good and there are people that are bad. Yep. Um, and, you know, they, they go to the, the most classic example mm-hmm. of a country that was as a whole irredeemably evil. The one that everyone's going to go to. Right. Uh, you know, talking about Nazi Germany. Well, uh, the average foot, soldier, average foot soldier was still a Nazi, though that has its complicated parts with, mm-hmm. you know, state compulsion. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I do. I appreciate that they ultimately land on societies don't exactly have alignments. Mm-hmm. It's not really a thing. Right. But yeah, just that, that's a sort of uncomfortable conversation to me at any time. Um, mythology in the world less uncomfortable for it <laughs> you're all for this one huh yeah yep. me too i i really i really like this section it's it's uh it basically says you know um 
what are the, what are the what are the roles of the deities, right? What are the roles of the creatures and the giant monsters and the very powerful entities that inhabit your universe? What are their roles and where they come from? Uh-huh. Which is always always fun, right? That's that's just you know, and of course there's a good and evil conversation in in that section as well. But of course right. because you're not you're not ascribing it to humanoid civilized populations. It's a different right. kind of conversation. It's a little bit easier to, you know. You're, you're applying it to the stories they tell about right. themselves and their gods. Exactly. And good and evil are completely appropriate there mm-hmm. because that's absolutely how we tell stories. Absolutely. Um, and you get your archetypal gods section talking about how to build a pantheon mm-hmm. um, and uh, evil deities and decadent deities and so on, monsters and mythology. A lot of a lot of great standard stuff here. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. A section on creating religions, which is yeah. you know has some decent questions, food for thought type of questions for you know it because it, it talks about spheres, of course, because you know uh, second edition has spheres of influence for right. clerics and and domains and whatnot. Um, Th- though, of course, they aren't. This is not a list of them. Because no, 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 no. no <laughs> that's no. not how that works. Uh, <laughs> right, so, right. So, it, so it's the conventional meaning of sphere of influence right. rather than spheres as priest and, spell lists. As mechanically, right. Yes, right. But then it talks, but then it goes into talking about how to create a religion. And so, yeah, it's less mechanical and more conversational, right? Which actually describes this entire book. Even in spots where it's telling you to do a certain thing, like like in some of this world building section, it's literally telling you how to draw your river. Like, here's where you draw in the rivers, right? Like, decide, you know, here's how to decide where they go. Okay, now draw them, you know. Uh, but that's uh, even, even with that sort of peculiarity, uh, it's not really a book that's telling you mechanistically what to do with your game. It's it's really a book that is a food for thought kind of book. It's trying to present to you many different things and many different sort of ways to look at certain issues that you might have as you're addressing possible situations or possible world building questions, which I appreciate. You know, it's, it's sort of uh, this book is a very, boy, this is weird to say. This book is a very easy read, right? Yep. Um, you know, when you compare this to, say, the first edition DMG, the first edition DMG jumps around and it's sort of topical, but not in a, a very, uh, uh, not in an order that makes a lot of sense in a lot of cases. Um, it, it's more like a reference book that really needs a good table of contents and index, even though I know it has a table of contents, right? Uh, I mean, it it's needs a better a collection one, right? of blog posts. Sure, right? it is. Um, whereas this book, is very well laid out. It has a flow of information. It it has a point to each section. It has very obvious section headings, and it's just an easy read. And that's not a statement saying it's lesser than. Like it's not a lesser read. It's just an easier. It's it's an easier to read book, and yeah. it's partly because it's written in a more conversational manner, like like your best friend sitting down to tell you, okay, well, here's how I created my setting. Here's some things you should think about to create your own setting. Right. I mean, in terms of the prose, it has a good sense of pacing, varying up sentence length, 
this, this standard important stuff that makes writing easy to read and not bounce off of. Right. Um, it's also, the book's also chosen a friendly font size. Mm-hmm. Yes. It helps. <laughs> yes, it does. Yes, it does. If and we ever get the complete uh, book of necromancers, we will all be sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I will yes. need to go break out a microscope. Right. And be sad. Um, the art on page 73 here, here again, we're going to be a podcast talking about art, yep. but the art on page 73 is just glorious. I love it. Well, and the, the next page after that is a full color page. Oh yeah. Of it's that's, beautiful. that's an iconic. That's um, actually from one of the covers of one of the dragon magazines. Nice. Um, but I, I appreciate that they close on, Hey, if you're going to do something set in the real world or a close approximation of the real world mm-hmm. uh really do your homework right no really um, yeah don't paint with so broad of a brush that you just get it all wrong don't be like that right yeah especially if you're saying it's based on the real world <laughs> for right. sure yeah. yep yep which brings us to chapter seven i think that was a that's a record that's a record uh, record speed through that chapter. <laughs> well, other, other than chapter five, the, the single page. Well, that one doesn't count. Come on. <laughs> Dude, we need the help. <laughs> it brings our average down. Yes. That's right. Um, but so chapter seven is maps and map making. And I mean, we are off to the races with deep practical stuff here. Yeah. Right. This and is really drilling down. Remember to, who wrote this? Janelle Jaquays wrote this. One of the things I love about this so much is um, Janelle starting to lay out some of her theses on mm-hmm. level design. Right. And it's, there's so few good sources on level design, qua level design in D and D. And it makes me so mad because we could be doing so much more. Yeah. And like, she so clearly knew it in 90. Right. And the art hasn't moved forward. Right. Like, uh, you know, I have all the love in the world for Dyson logos, but uh, I mean, I, I really do mean that I have nothing but respect for his work. I, I love it. I use it gleefully. Um, like I am, I am not bagging on him. I'm really not. His maps are still very much, like the level design aesthetic mm-hmm. of the old days. Right. I don't know what a new level design aesthetic looks like because no one's doing it. Right. Um, I think it has to involve uh, terrain being able to change more. So it's much harder to put on a written page. And that's right. a problem. Yeah. 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 It's more like a, um, uh, it would have to be sort of laid out like a modular, almost board game type, right? Where uh, so, if if this thing happens, then this room here is this. So right? uh, about that, I got uh, Scarlet Citadel by Kobold. Okay. And they've got these incredibly gorgeous, lush, uh, fold-out maps. Mm-hmm. They're, they're battle maps of the damn dungeon. <laughs> and there absolutely are cards that you can lay over parts of the dungeon if if or when thing happens nice and just it totally changes that area right like good use of tech right there Mm -hmm. right um 
And I think that for a lot of, like, you're stuck with just a, a page in a bound book. You've got to be ready with um, now use version A of this map. Now use right. version B of this map. Well, so let's be honest, too. Fourth edition did a little bit with this because, for example, Madness at Gardmore Abbey, mm. when you, when you uh, have… That's a, a lingering gap in my knowledge, just to be clear. Okay. So there, Madness at Gardmore Abbey uses the deck of many things. Right. But it it has a premise to the deck of many things that uses it differently than any of the previous editions, and inclu- including and and the current edition. Okay, and the premise is something happened. It gives you the whole backstory. I'm not going to go into the backstory, but basically, the 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 um the cards get scattered, so the deck is no longer a deck, and so the individual cards, while they're they're in the possession of someone, they can actually be used to change the environment. They do something to the environment. And I don't mean like they make a, a tree grow or whatever, but like we're talking about fourth edition. So if you slam that card down, it can actually act like, almost like the origin of a spell and create a zone, right? And that zone can do something uh, from from be very controllery and cause people to move to be uh, very healing and, and give some, some kind of boon to someone, right? It, can do, it does a lot of things. It can become a lava pit. Like it does these different things, right? Um, and the more cards that a person has in their possession, the stronger some of those effects get, right? And mm-hmm. so if you start throwing down these cards on the board, right, on the battle mat, and those become these different zones, you now have a very different map than what you had in the beginning, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so there's a little bit of that. And you know that that was late stage fourth edition. So late stage fourth edition had all kinds of terrain changes, right? All, all terrain powers and different sort of objectives and different things that you had to go through to interact with the environment that made it really cool to play that game on that table, right? Um, yep. And and I think we lost some of that because fifth edition sort of reverted to a a a so-called non-tactical, you know, edition. At least not definitely not as tactical as third or fourth edition, or late stage second edition. Um, but so that's you know so I, I agree with you. And the thing is, you know, you say you say Janelle knew this. You know, Jayquay's knew this in 1990. She knew it before. Because she oh, was doing for sure, things like sure. Dark Tower and no, no, Caverns no. of Thracia I, I, I long I don't before that, right? That like she she hadn't already got it well fixed in her mind. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm just saying this is a place where she proved it while writing for TSR. Right, right, and and, and exactly. And it was yeah, very specifically part of the new iteration of the D and D conversation in right. Second Ed because Caverns of Thracia was uh, what first Ed. Yeah, first yeah. adventure. Yeah, Dark Tower's first mm-hmm. adventure. Mm-hmm. So it would be easier to easier to understand if those had faded into obscurity because oh, there's this older edition. Well, mm-hmm. they faded into obscurity because it's hard to get. Is why. But <laughs> let's set that aside. <laughs> Not for anymore. Now. But anyway, yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> uh, right. Uh, yeah. You know what I mean. Yeah. Um, no idea. I do. Um, it's just this is one of the things that keeps fading into the background mm-hmm. of the conversation. Right. And like, I don't want to be unkind to like, new and intermediate DMS, but uh, I'll be damned if I don't want to just be able to have conversations with incredibly advanced DMS so we can get to the really interesting questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. 
Yep. Um, that's, that's kind of how I feel about Let's it. Let's make no mistake too. Uh, the the addition matters when you're talking about how adventures and dungeons tend to be created, right? Uh, that's not to say that you can't create a good dungeon or something in any edition. You can, but um, the way that the PCs interact with the different elements of the dungeon heavily depends upon the rule set that you're using. And so yeah. while I agree with you that this is technology that should have advanced and that we've known these ideas for a really long time and they even got published in a TSR publication and, and all of that. And I agree with all of that, but I think what happens is uh, it's hard and as you said, it's hard to put on a two-dimensional page, even if you're drawing in isometric style, right? It's really difficult to put oh, for sure. the different types of changing levels and changing rooms and all of that stuff on an image that is a static image. Yep. And so that it's already a skill to be able to draw those things and use artistic talent to, to, to have some sort of notion of what you're looking at. And it's even more of a skill to be able to translate that into something really uh, highly dimensional and diverse in its environmental aspects and all of those things that we're begging for that Janelle seems to be able to do, you know, in 1979, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, like, I think there's reasons why it hasn't been pulled into the game you know, it's just, it's hard to do. I think it's really hard to do. It's, it's maybe not hard to imagine, but it's hard to represent in a way that is easy to explain and easily represented on the two-dimensional page. For sure. So, I mean, I don't know. That doesn't mean, I, you know, I think there are solutions, but yeah, uh, we'll see. <laughs> yep. The thing is yep, with yep. the advent of such complex VTTs, you'd think that we could produce something that would allow for the jquaying of the dungeon, right? You'd think that, but you'd also you're also staring down the barrel of man. Roll twenty falls over if someone sneezes on it. Sneezes, uh, it, you know, <laughs> three counties yeah, over. Yeah, it is so fragile sometimes, right? And we're relying so heavily on. Uh, the Beyond 20 API mm -hmm. to handle stats. Um, and when that falls over, you can have a bad day. Yeah. yeah. And so there's not really even room to get really fancy. So, so maps and map making. Um, so literally this section talks about what makes a good map what the different types and, and regional uh, or ranges of maps that you can create, regional maps, world maps, encounter maps, et cetera, different diagrams, uh, talks about mapping symbols, using color for your maps. I mean, it's really a great little treatise on map making. It really is. Yep. Well, I mean, um, getting down to here are the tools you should go out and buy to right. do really good map making is mm -hmm. just... You don't see that level of, you know, nitty gritty detail in almost anything uh, published in gaming. Of just here is how you do this, right. you know, yeah. the physical act, 
And mm-hmm. I just, I love that. Right. Um, and then it, and then it has a, a, a section at the end with a bunch of uh, reference reference works, right? It says uh, mapping with authority. And then it gives you some suggestions on what to actually, what books to go get. Now, of course, this was written 30 years ago, as you say. Uh, and um, so, you know, <laughs> uh, when you're talking about, you know, something written 30 years ago, of course, it's not going to have references that are less than 30 years old, but, um, you know, so in that way it's outdated, but just like any good reference, if you're talking about just getting a reference to see different styles and different types of maps, it doesn't matter how outdated it is, right? It doesn't matter that it's 50 years old instead of 20 years old, right? Yep. Well, and man, getting someone to sit down and explain something like perspective mapping to you, Mm -hmm. that's, it's absolutely wild that they, found space in a book to cover some of this stuff. I, I love right. it. Yeah. Uh, but yes, you're right. Like some of these books might be out of print or hard to find. Mm-hmm. Um, probably a lot of them have more recent editions. It's fine. Right. Yeah. Um, yep. And then that's the end of, so we, you know, we're not digging really much into the nitty gritty here, but uh Right. There's not really much to dig into other than if you enjoy making maps or you want to learn how to make maps or you want to just get a sort of small introduction to making maps, this is the 10 pages for you. Right. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, what I would say to someone working now in wanting to learn to make maps, uh, you might as well go to um, Dyson Logos's or um, Mike Schley's. Uh, website or one of the other amazing mappers who are out there and figure out who speaks to you in each of the different types of maps, their dungeon maps, their city maps, their regional maps, Mm -hmm. um, all this kind of stuff, figure out what speaks to you and start copying what they're doing and figuring out why they're doing it and figuring out where variations work and don't. Um, But none of this was, was feasible in 1990 because what is the internet? Right. Right. And, and through, through using the internet and looking at all these different current or contemporary map makers, you know, if you start copying them, what that does is it gives you some baseline skills that then if you start getting good at those things and then you deviate from those, then you develop your own style. And that's exactly what, you know, what an amateur map maker is going to do. Now, if you want to be a professional cartographer, that's a totally different topic. That's not who we're yep. talking to, right? I'm not talking to a professional cartographer or somebody who wants to be, right? Like that's that's a different topic. But if you just want to learn how to draw better maps for your game, this section is great or, you know, and go on, you know, complement it with going on the internet as they, as Brandis said, and, uh, and, and look at what you can see from all the different, you know, Dyson logos and, Mike Sly and all of those people, Jared Blando. And, you know, there's a lot of people out there that, that are making maps that are really great. And if you find stuff you like, copy their style and then make something your own. Also absolutely noteworthy is Devin Rue, the Alexandria map maker. Um, her work is, is gorgeous and worth tracking down yeah, for, absolutely. especially for your, your big world maps, just phenomenal stuff there. Yeah. Um, campaign coins, the, the company that makes campaign coins, they they also make um, little uh, 
what do you call it? Compass roses, little metal compass roses based on her designs. Nice. Uh, so yeah, um, I mean, she, you know, that it's it's not it's based on her designs, and she like you know, it's not really a licensing thing, but she designed them, and then they mint them, and you know, they're really nice. They're little map weights, so you can weigh down the corners of maps that you're spreading out. The table. They're really nice. Cool. I have, I have a couple of them. Yeah, and the, and they're they've got a nice heft to them. You know, they're not just like paper thin, crappy. Like, yeah, they're beautiful. Yeah, they they, they look very substantial. That's yeah. awesome. That's yeah. Awesome. So anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So so the next section here we, we're going to get into is chapter eight, creating the adventure. And what I appreciate about the first paragraph of this is starting to really acknowledge there are so many different things going on with good DMing that it's a miracle that any of it ever works. Um, right. the, the paragraph says, uh, Regardless of how clever he may be at world creation, and in spite of his technical accomplishments at drawing beautiful maps, a DM who doesn't put his best effort into the design of spine-tingling, heart-pounding adventures has missed the entire point of role-playing games. Uh, adventure design is an art form like writing novels or painting pictures, one that requires creativity, ingenuity, a measure of technical skill, and a dedication to the task at hand. Yep. How does any of this ever work? So many things. Right, but then followed by the next sentence, which is also wonderful. There is no one true way to design a good adventure because there are so many different people that play the game and so many plates to be spinning and so many different things going on and so many types of players and types of people at your table. There is no one way. Yep, and as fans of The Good Place know, there is no answer. But Eleanor is the answer. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yes. But yeah, there's a, a you know, bullet point list of goals to aim for in, in writing your adventure. Um, playing like good fiction reads, but avoiding a predetermined path. Uh, uh, drawing PCs into a well-woven web of activities, personally involving the characters, telling more than a single story, Beginning and ending with excitement. Testing the skills of the players and their characters. This one might be a little out of fashion, though I am still in favor of it. I just want to say. Mm-hmm. Um, we were talking uh, before we started recording about the presence of puzzles in games that remains so divisive. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we don't need to re- rehash yeah. that right now. But yeah, that's what we're talking about here. But this is, yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's a... In, in in the early games, in the earliest conceptions of, of D&D, um, for, for all intents and purposes, the way that those stories have been told about those early games, there were a lot of things that, for example, Gary Gygax did where the answer wasn't something that a character or PC would know. The answer was the player doing something or saying something or making a certain symbol with their hand or a certain facial expression or, or something like that to resolve the puzzle. And that's what it means when it's talking about testing the skills of the player. Is it the player, did the player get all the clues in game so that they could actually produce the correct response from themselves, not from their PC, but from themselves to satisfy the DM to solve the riddle or puzzle or whatever. Um, The thing that I think we don't call a puzzle now that remains 
a, a real actual puzzle of play is uh, collating accumulated lore and clues into mm-hmm. a, a plan of action, right? right? right. Um, I, I'm in campaigns that have really quite uh, elevated and arcane lore, right? It's mm-hmm. very complicated stuff and just piecing it all together and holding enough of it in my head at once that I can grasp new incoming information correctly is a challenge. It right. is challenging me as a player, but in a way that I, I like. Right. Right. And often has a sort of um, that's more of a long-term usually sort of a long slow burn kind of thing. Right. For sure. Because you For are sure. compiling the lore over multiple sessions. Yep. Um, and not just a sort of uh, uh, acute, uh, punk- punctuated. You know, here's the puzzle in. You know, here's a piece of lore, and now you're using that lore right now, this second, in five minutes later to solve this puzzle. Is not usually right. how how it works. Yeah. Right. It, typically, you need to at least synthesize the information. Right. Right. Uh, and then finally, uh, though the outcome may not be earth shaking, even the smallest adventure has a discernible effect on the world. Yeah. And uh, this is something that I've been really appreciating in recent games I've played uh, with how the the DMs have been emphasizing the effects we've had in the world um, mm-hmm. and, and how those things have rippled out from us. That's been yeah. really, really cool. Yeah. So that's like, if you ignored everything else in this list, but got that one exactly right, mm-hmm. you might still be somewhere is right. what I want to say. Well, and, and just to, to, to sort of illustrate the, um, the the conversational style of this and the, the sort of easy read style of this that I was mentioning earlier, the next paragraph says this, it may not be possible for the novice DM to make his first or even second adventure match this list 100%, but even giving conscious thought to these elements as he designs means that he is moving in the right direction. That's the sort of, let me give you some advice, one DM to another about how you're going to need to frame your thoughts as you start writing this adventure. Don't worry about being perfect. Don't worry about matching everything on the list. But if you at least are thinking of these things in the back of your mind, eventually they'll work their way into your adventure. And that's, that's just how it's going to be. And, you know, rather than here's a bullet point and then let's write in all caps and bold it and say, you must have all these elements to make a good adventure, right? Like, that's, yeah, for sure. Right. That's, that's not the way to write this and that's not the way this is written. So um, it's a very, this is a very good session section. I, I mean, I like as it. a, as a difference from Gygax's style, it couldn't right. be any more striking for sure. And then you get you know, evaluating the players talking about the different you know, things players find rewarding. Um, adventures, problem solvers, role players. Well, this this is section has been in in uh, in Dungeon Masters guides uh, for the past 15, 20 years, right? This this it, right. I mean, to various extents, right? Uh, I want to say that Robin's Laws of Good Game Mastering was one of the first, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, mm-hmm. texts other than maybe this book. Right. That other really than hit this, that right? Hard. Exactly. Yeah, um, but I guess what I'm saying is this is such an important. I think this is something that gets kind of poo-pooed nowadays, right? Like, oh, well, you know, it's too, it's too simplistic. It's too reductive. You, you, you know, the truth is that, that people are more than one thing. Well, yeah, all that's true. But 
it's a good idea to try to think about what types of things your what types of behaviors your players are exhibiting so that you can try to help learn what makes the game fun for them that particular way of stating this you know framing this this issue is a very useful one and and that is the reason why robin's laws of good game mastering and this section and future future to this book future dmgs have that information in it because it is actually important even if people kind of dismiss it because it's reductive and too simple yeah it is but that's because human psychology is vast and humans are complex we know this but you got to start somewhere you got to start writing about people somewhere right and and these are these are just defining poles not Mm -hmm. actual people that's right yeah, yeah, we're not trying to pigeonhole people. We're just saying, hey, here's some things you want to think about, right? Yep. Um, and acknowledging that problem solvers can be tough to GM for is uh, worth doing. Sure. Um, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. Like it's a very, it's a very different style from a lot of other ways of thinking. But I have some players that work like this, and. I just need to like recalibrate my whole thought when they have a new idea for something because it is going to be a different approach to just parsing out action than it would be for someone who was more in- invested in emotional stakes specifically. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yep. And so there's there's actually a little bit more that I wish could be said about this in terms of um, not just challenging them, but incorporating their ideas fruitfully. Right. Yeah. And then we get to uh, the importance of story. And so it talks a lot about theme and plots and telling tales and, and how to maybe structure, you know, an outline uh, and it talks about personal involvement and plot twists and and um, again, it's a it's a really good you know. It, for example, it's it says you know don't give out solutions, present clues, remember to provide occasional red herrings to keep the PCs on their toes, uh, and maybe they don't accept everything they hear as truth, which is a good thing. Um, on the other hand, remember that um, usually it's somebody who's giving the pieces information is not going to lie, right? Like, so, right. you know, it's trying to give actionable advice in both sides of it, which they've done since the beginning. I think I said that way back in chapter one, that it's trying this, this text particularly is trying to give both sides and trying to illustrate how part of what the DM does is sort of ride the middle rail, right? And try yep. to give just enough and not too much. Um, well, I just, I really appreciate the episode structure mm-hmm. of, you know, major story beats for each session. I think that's yep. really valuable. Um, I don't necessarily plan things out like three sessions from now. I want to have this happened. It's instead, here's the general direction I'm going. We get as far as we get, but that's fine. Whatever. Right. Right. Sure. Um, and I'm I'm sort of like that as well. I, I generally don't plan out specific like, okay, in three sessions we're doing this, but but I understand from the perspective of if you're a first time DM or a first for the first time you're trying to plan out 
a sort of larger adventure rather than run something published or whatnot, having a, a framework presented to you and showing you how somebody might make that framework is actually an instructive exercise. And Absolutely. then and then, then you have to understand that maybe you're not going to get all, to all of that in one session, right? <laughs> so. Yep. Um, and uh, plot complications and twists, that's, that's great stuff. Um, I honestly wish this section was bigger. I, I oh, more Lord, bullet, absolutely. You know, the bullets the, of, of the different types of, you know, twists. Oh, my goodness. You could write five more pages and I would eat that up. Yep. Every single one could be its own blog post and mm -hmm. not a word wasted. That's how yeah. I feel about it. Yeah. Um, and it, like getting new creative hooks that are something other than reading a stranger in a tavern is mm -hmm. let's say still under tapped <laughs> still going to be going back right. to taverns right. meeting strangers yep. but mm -hmm. every once in a while it's fine just make sure you're finding other stuff later on um <laughs> but yeah this is this is just continuing good discussion of story and structure and tone um the section on suspense, drama, and humor, um, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and, and, and also, mm -hmm. yep, like the section on success and failure. Oh boy, um, <laughs> I have had some some tough conversations around this one with people who did not get this memo in the past. <laughs> um, okay <laughs> both when they were on the the gm side and when they're on the player side right. It, it, right. i've seen it be a thing um of just hey i'm not deciding an outcome like that that's what happens i don't decide that um right. when it talks about you know um think of it as a novel it's telling you not to think of it as a novel in which the dm must guide the players to make the right choices in order for the end of the story to come out as mm -hmm. as he has planned yeah well when we were um running dust to dust that i've talked about so many times mm -hmm. uh, we didn't know what the end was going to be uh anytime near the beginning even at the beginning of the last season of the campaign we couldn't have told you what the end was going to be though we were starting to get some ideas of what it might be um and we had people really confused by that and pushing back against it and convinced that us not knowing the ending meant we didn't care about the story oh. nothing could be further mm -hmm. from the truth mm -hmm. it is because we're solely invested in seeing where the story goes and capitalizing on player choices that you know we care about the story right. but the sign of it is that we haven't decided the end yeah uh, you know the most unsatisfying game i have ever played in and i don't play often i'm you know about about 85 maybe 90 percent of the time i'm the dm but i do play occasionally because i i think it's important to be you know on the other side of the screen uh, at least on a relatively frequent basis, even for a one shot or whatnot. But the, the most unsatisfying campaign that I played in, it was about session six or seven. And 
there was an event. I'm not going to give too many details because I don't want to call somebody out. Uh, and to those in the game, it will be immediately obvious. Um, but basically, the DM had decided what the end of the session was supposed to look like mm -hmm. in terms of what was happening. And uh, pulled various players out into the hall uh, before the game started to ask us questions um, about a certain how we thought about a certain event and what we would do in a certain circumstance, and we answered those questions. And then, you know, as we're playing the game, some some of these circumstances started appearing. Um, but because of because of course the nature of RPGs, a couple of us chose a different. Uh, chose our PCs to do something different than what we had said in the hall before the game because of because things changed right circumstances yep. had changed it wasn't exactly clear to us uh, uh, you know when we were yeah. being asked in the hall right why and the DM got really upset because oh, no. we chose something different and and he had put it in his head okay if they choose this here's how it's going to end. And then he manipulated the rest of the session to make it match his conceived ending rather than actually go with our, our decisions in game. Uh, yeah. And it was so unsatisfying. It was so unsatisfying because basically what it said was the player's choice didn't matter and what their PC did didn't matter. Uh, yeah. And consequently, in this particular game, my character actually died. Mm -hmm. But he, the DM, didn't want the character to die, so brought the character back in a in a divine intervention sort of way, which was so unsatisfying, right? Ugh. Because my PC died because of his choices. Yeah. Not be it wasn't some like random, you know, whatever. It was because of the choices, purposefully the choices that were made, right? And, you know, so it was so unsatisfying. And so I all, all of this to say, not that I want to tell you, keep telling you about my game, but um, all this to say, the point of this section is trying to tell the DM. You're, if you're going to have a preconceived notion of how it's going to end and you're going to force that on the players, you might as well just read them a novel. You're not yep. playing a game at that point because their choices aren't mattering. And as soon as you play a game where their choices don't matter and it becomes obvious to them, which, you know, sometimes it might not be obvious to them and you might get away with it. And that's OK, I guess. But as soon as it becomes obvious to the players, it's very, very unsatisfying and they'll lose trust in you. And the problem with a table where the players don't trust you is that they'll never trust you again. If you don't work to get that trust back or even realize that you lost that trust. Yep. Yep. I agree with that completely. Yep. That, so. that, uh, trust is so important to build with every decision you make because mm -hmm. especially as you go on you're you're going to be cashing in some of that trust yeah right yep and y you better hope there's something left in that bag right uh, right yeah and it's and as a play from the player perspective it's really hard for me personally it's really hard for me to be a good player if i don't trust the dm oh yeah right Oh, absolutely. Uh, because for me, RPGs is playing playing an RPG, running an RPG, whatever, having this as a hobby, it's a very personal hobby for me. You know, I 
I, I don't sit and talk in character or whatever, but I get really into the story and I get really into the game part of it too. Uh-huh. And, you know, you know, it's, a, it's, it's kind of the same reason, same core sort of kernel about the reasons why I don't fudge dice. Right. Because, because it's a trust thing for me. Right. Sure. Um, yep where I want a certain amount of trust around the table. And I don't mean that in a hokey, like, Oh, I trust you, man. I mean, I need to trust that what's happening at the table is relatively organic in terms of the choices matter and the, the, the results of the situations that arise that's happening because of the people around the table. And it needs to feel natural, not scripted to me. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I agree with you. That that's yeah, I can't think of anything I want to add to that. that, that yeah. That gets well, it. I mean, and just to be clear, I'm not I'm not saying fudging dice is oh my god, it's the most horrible thing in the world. I'm saying for me personally, that's one of the reasons I choose not to, uh, right. from from the DM's um, perspective, right? So and like, I don't fudge dice because um, I'm, I'm comfortable just rolling in the clear all the time. Mm-hmm. If there's TPK, I'm not saving them from it. I'm not saving them from it because they have other characters. They can go on a corpse run and right. save those characters. Sure. It's fine. Yeah, it's their call. Yeah. Um, yeah, but you know, I'm also really going to be really careful about signaling, "Hey, this is extra dangerous," mm-hmm. and right. you know, the monsters are probably going to give you a way to get away. Maybe it costs one character their life, maybe two. Right. The, the monsters are probably not going to have an easy time carrying out the TPK if you don't force them to. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, and I'm the same way. Telegraph the information that they're in over their heads, and if they choose to stay in that big pool where they're in over their heads, they're going to drown. If they try to take steps to get out of that pool because they realize, then I'm going to try to help them as much as possible within the bounds of the game, but it's not going to be through fudging. It's going to be through providing opportunities for them to act on, you know, the situation. So, anyway. Yep, that's that's we're 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 off on a tangent again, as we often are. But um, a salient one for GMing in general. Sure. Um, sure. So next up is campaign style, um, recognizing uh, the the styles as a linear. Uh, mm-hmm. Sure, railroad. It's sure railroad. It, it's railroad can be a really uh, freighted term. Ha. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a pun um, <laughs> or a play on words. Uh, let me explain them to you. Um, uh, but this is trying to talk about that in a, a non-judgmental way. Um, and then the open campaign, um, what we'd call a sandbox, right? right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the matrix campaign, which is where you get uh, Keanu Reeves, Carrie Ann Moss and Lawrence Fishburne. <laughs> Did you I, know the Matrix no, Four is coming out later this month, and I'm super excited. I'm <laughs> super excited. Yeah, uh, just wild to realize that that book was nine. That, that movie was nine years in the future when this book was written. Yeah, yeah, mm. true. Mm. Oh boy. Mm. <laughs> All right. Anyway, I'm old, so time flies. <laughs> <laughs> um, but. Uh, Oh. Uh, so the, the matrix campaign is is kind of the in-between between a fully linear, what we would call more railroaded uh, story versus right. fully open, uh, go, go wherever they want uh, kind of idea. It's basically an open but with constraints type of campaign, 
right? right. You get some hooks, is- you decide what to follow, but the hooks are there. You don't create your own hooks. Right. It's, it's very much, um, so you're in a sandbox, but the villains have agendas and agency. Right. Okay, go. Right. Yep. Yeah. Which is what I do, mm-hmm. right? My, my yeah. players can go anywhere, and I try to give them reasons to go all kinds of different places. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, and while they're taking care of one problem, the other problems don't just sit there static. They're actually progressing. Yep. 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 Same uh, other fronts advance, mm-hmm. right. as Apocalypse World would tell you. Yep. Um, and so that's it for chapter eight. Yep. That cleared another chapter All right that's uh, by not delving into every paragraph <laughs> but they're all so good it's a summary summary a summary um, uh, so chapter nine yeah making NPCs live so here is your several pages on basically how to not have every NPC look the same act the same named Bob and provide the same exact information. Um, Personality traits, producing a sort of background, uh, giving a motivation, and then tweaking a physical appearance. Uh, And and how to act at the table. And and how to act at the table, yes. Yes. Uh And and believability. There's a nice little section on believability. You know, don't overuse popular stereotypes. They might seem great, but if they're overused and unoriginal, then you're going to have problems later. Right? Then you might suck. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, the the first paragraph just had me sort of grinning here in my seat. Um, there's a reference from. Um, they're encountered during the course of an adventure and may range from Shedu to shopkeepers, trolls to trollops, and Korid to kings. And I read a lot of uh, Robert Asprin mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the, the Myth Inc. series. So mm-hmm. trolls to trollops is super funny to me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <Yep>. Anyway, <laughs> uh, if you have not read Myth Inc. and you like puns, I've got good news for you in your life. <laughs> Yeah. Yep. So yeah, um, I mean, this is this is all good stuff, and talking about just how to role play an NPC and write them to be memorable. Uh, this is going to be recapitulated in every later DMG. It's super necessary. Yep. Um, this is not as table driven as a lot of stuff you're going to see elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, of just here's a collection of. Uh, you know, anywhere from eight to 100 ideas for right. uh, who this person is, but it's fine, you know. Yeah, uh, I mean, and I don't know, I don't really have a good sense of how popular or unpopular this book actually was upon publication, mm, but yeah. but I feel like it wasn't as popular maybe as it should have been because we just don't hear about it, right? We just don't hear a lot about it. Uh, and I feel like if it had tables upon tables for each of these sections, we would still be hearing more about it, right? We That's hear, very possible. We yeah. would hear comparisons between, you know, the DMG, 5th edition DMG and this book because, right, because that's the 5th yeah. edition DMG, that's the benefit it has, or that's the maybe advantage 
it has over this book is that it ha- it has, and they were willing to put in tables for all of these things. If th- this book, if you want to double the page count of this book, you could put in a couple of tables for every section of this book. You got it. Absolutely. Um, and ultimately, I think that the tables do have use for, for rapid uh, development of characters or cities or whatever you mm-hmm. have, mm-hmm. but this is fine. This is still necessary. Well, and that's the thing is that th- those tables, the tables are great, right? And I love a good old random table, right? You know, I'm very old school in that way. For sure. But here's the for thing sure. is that tables, once I know sort of what the basis for the necessity of that table is, it works as a great creative juices getting the flow going, right? Right. But if you're a brand new DM and you've never actually had someone sit down and tell you the importance of making your MP NPCs with motivations, then having it just spelled out in natural language is good rather than having one paragraph and then 20 tables. Right. So I think there's a place for this book, even without the tables, I guess is what I'm saying. Yep. I, I definitely agree with that. Um, it, the, the fact that it uh, breaks down special character types as mundane folk, children, persons in power, Demi-humans, monsters, and magical items. That is a fascinating list. I, Why so? Why do you think so? Um, well, including magical items as just a reminder of, yep, you're going to need to roleplay some of these. There's some <laughs> sentient ones out there. Yes, Be yeah. thinking about this. Like That's <laughs> great. Um, this book, Remembering to Teach You How to Roleplay Children. Mm. It says something interesting to me about just where their heads were as they put this together, mm-hmm. right? Um, right? Well, and it has this great line under the children's section. It says, children are quick to point out the obvious, even when adults are pretending to overlook something. And that is very brilliant story building, right? Because yep. if a group is moving through town – the adults are trying to follow the mores or the norms of that town's adult population. The kids don't give a crap. Yep. And that is the perfect fodder for PCs going to talk to the kids who aren't going to hold back, right? <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Great. Yeah. In my Dragon Heist game, they ran into some of the, the kid NPCs. <laughs> and uh, that was an interesting encounter. <laughs> <laughs> They, they definitely drew some conclusions, which were not perfectly right and definitely not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Perfect. That was, a, that was a good time. Um, but yeah, like um, the separating the section of demi-humans is probably not a way you write it now. That's okay. Uh, but yeah, emphasizing I mean, that your elves don't behave like humans. That's yeah. probably worth doing. It's fine. I mean, that's a, that's a term that's that's antiquated in today's language, but it was still very much in active use in the one E days and in the early two E days. So uh, it's going to survive all the way through two E for sure, but yeah. be tossed right on the fire uh, in yeah. in third ed. Third ed, right? Sure. Um, but yeah, that that's a good section, and uh, you know the the. Discussion of humor uh, is kind of it's interesting to have it put in here at the end, but it's not it's not wrong. Yeah, 
it's not wrong. It's just that doing humor in a game is so tough. You know, uh, doing doing humor intentionally in a game right. can, can be tough. If right. you're not laughing around the table, you might be gaming wrong. Oh, sure, sure. But I, I mean, yeah, I, what I'm talking about is the planning to make something a humorous encounter. Yeah. If you are not sure exactly what the humorous tastes, what the comedy tastes of your players are, it's probably going to fall flat for at least half of them, right? <laughs> Yeah, if not like that, more. That's one of the really interesting things about watching Critical Role is mm-hmm. like, they're actors who have worked in comedy, right? Um, and so when they they do something as a bit, it lands a lot more, right? And I appreciate that, right? Like, mm-hmm. That's actually something that could stand to be talked about a lot more with Critical Role. Mm-hmm. I, I feel mm-hmm. sure, sure, yeah. But in general, just like anything else. If you're not a natural comedian and you don't have a natural feel for how to set up a scene to yep. be the type of comedy that you're going for, be careful. Yeah. Um, like, especially more recently, I've been trying to build some scenes toward comedy. And a fair amount of the time, I, I find myself having to explain the joke. <laughs> uh, oh, that's sad. Uh, like a little bit. Like, right. I, I get sort of wrapped up in talking and can't figure out how to stop, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is not surprising to you, my my dear co-host. But, or anyone um, listening. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that brings us, uh, Mirabile Dictu, to the end of chapter nine. Yeah. Very quick chapter. Very important one, but very quick one. Uh, and now we get to chapter 10. Uh, we're getting very close to the end of the book now. Yes, but- we are. In in a lot of ways, this is this is practically the base drop uh, of the whole book to me because really getting into some logic of dungeons and some good level design of dungeons mm-hmm. is just such a under discussed territory, right? Right. Um, this is the catacomb guide part of the book. See, yep. the book is called the campaign source book and catacomb guide. And everything in the previous 99 pages was the campaign source book. And now we're going to spend, you know, what is it? 30 pages, 25 pages on the actual catacomb yep. guide. Yep. Peter Gabriel is four minutes into this song by the time he <laughs> finally gets to the damn bass drop, but it's great every time. <laughs> It is. Uh, so this is chapter 10. Uh, so, so dungeon settings has um, the disadvantages of dungeons, like the things that make it hard. Uh, what's interesting to me is that this chapter is um, laser focused on the dungeon must be below ground. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that definition, while historically accurate to what the donjon is, mm-hmm. right, um, is largely outdated for people playing and writing now. An above-ground right. dungeon is just this castle. It's dungeon. Right. That's a problem. Wizard's right. Tower, castle, old abandoned manor. Yep. You know, I mean, you know, fort, prison yep. complex. I mean, yeah, this is all. This is all dungeon right. too. But this text is going to insist that you need to figure out why it has fallen below the surface of the earth. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And when I was in MMO design, um, we absolutely talked about anything where you um, crossed over an instance line was now the dungeon level, mm. right? Or if it was just um, an interior map that functioned differently from an exterior map, that's dungeon level, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, and, so, and to so be fair, specific they terminology do, is interesting. Yeah, they do actually relent on a few pages later and say, well, okay, there are above ground dungeons. Okay, fair enough. Right. But they but they spend a good amount of time uh, assuming that that there are not or acting as if there are not. Yeah. Um, oh, right. I see the above ground dungeons for sure. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of really good considerations in here for why someone would bother building below ground when it's mm-hmm. so difficult to excavate all of that you know, dirt and rock and so on. Right. Um, Difficult, expensive, deadly. Right. Yep. Yep. Uh, and if you uh, are listening to, um, if you don't listen to season one of Old Gods of Appalachia to hear about how much digging down in the earth makes the earth bad and it will kill you, do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a yep. absolutely wonderful horror podcast. Um, so um, it gets into a bunch of different kinds of underground structures, some of which are natural structures like caves mm-hmm. uh, and some of which are animal created. And uh, then sea caves, lava caves, faulting. Um, that's a tennis term. So it's a, t- a tennis dungeon. <laughs> um, yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, th- then the dungeons get unusual. Uh with different things that can bury a an above ground structure uh, mm-hmm. to turn it into a below ground dungeon, your sandstorms, your silting, your volcanism, um, overgrowth, uh, overgrowing yeah. magic, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so those are really good considerations for just setting a scene and an environment and thinking about where additional like environmental hazards and complications are going to come from. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the next section, which is my favorite. All right, go ahead. The, the psychological environment of the dungeon. Yep. This right. brings us into chapter 11, the dungeon campaign. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I don't think that that dungeon setting chapter is bad. It's only about five pages. I don't think it's yeah. a bad section. Yep. Uh, again, if you're brand new and you haven't really put a lot of thought into anything other than, hey, I've run a couple of games where we're in a dungeon – this is this is where the information comes in handy that if you've not thought about it before and you know again you know i'm reading this sort of section and i'm like eh, you know i've been running since 1982 of course i know but if i hadn't been or yep. if it was back in 1982 and i was reading something like this i would eat this stuff up it would be the best thing i've ever read yep Right. And so so while while a modern reader might say, oh, that little five page section, eh, I could get that in a blog post. Well, that's true. But, you know, back then, back in 1990, there was no such thing as a blog post. So right. it is what it is. Um, and then so that brings us to chapter 11. Uh, and, you know, getting into the psychological environment, um, it reminds me of how much gaming has come out of uh, just, hey, you know what? Going underground and finding uh, 
weird stuff that maybe you have to fight and maybe you can take with you and interesting stuff happens is um, incredibly rich in the human imagination, Mm -hmm. just boundlessly rich. And so you've got games like um, uh, Trophy Gold and uh, all kinds of other indie games that are focusing even more precisely on the psychological experience of the adventure and the dungeon mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the the horror of the delve. I want to say heart is another one that mm-hmm. really, really hits that hard uh, as it's as the core of its play. And mm-hmm. so it's cool to see it here, um, but also sort of a reminder that D&D doesn't have a, a stress mechanic as a standard thing. Uh, Van right. Richten's Guide to Ravenloft introduces one, but it remains fairly sort of light touch. Um, but emphasizing the, the psychological element of dungeon delving and isolation mm-hmm. and right. alienation and all of this is right. great. It's dark. It's damp. It's not our typical environment. There's weird smells. It's hard to keep track of time because you are sort of covered only by the light of your torch or your lantern. Um, You know, you lose your sense of direction, possibly if you're in a twisting natural cavern because it's not built the way that something that you created to live in or to, to do activities in would be built. You know, those sorts of things are really super fascinating and they are really hard to do well. And in fact, you could probably take some of this section and lift it and look at the fourth edition Uh, underdark book and it talks about so much similar you know this stuff is pervasive in DD because DD started in a dungeon i mean it's in the name dungeons and dragons right like it's it it's full impetus at the beginning was okay you're dungeon delving wilderness didn't come till later you know you're in a dungeon it's a weird dark place there's probably treasure down there but there's also scary monsters and how do you deal with that psychologically speaking? Like we already yep. know adventurers are weird, strange exceptions to the general rule. And here's a way that they are again, that they can even tolerate these environments for any length of time is amazing. Yeah. It reminds me of, of two things I want to mention. The first is thinking about the job of work that Peter Jackson does in the minds of Moria specifically mm. and mm-hmm. making that scary. I mean, that is a right. really great sequence mm-hmm. um, of how small and isolated uh, the fellowship is in Moria. And right. uh, second, um, if you want some amazing dungeon inspiration, uh, go look up urban explore- exploration photo- photography and mm-hmm. just see what time will do to a location. And that's very much your modern day dungeon crawling other Mm -hmm. than um, spelunking and God help you cave diving. Right. Right. Um, I was reading a thing a few weeks ago about this one uh, cave that's, it's this massive complex and, you know, it's killed hundreds of divers and Mm -hmm. the most that's ever been mapped of it is, you know, the first few hundred feet because, it has these weird tricks that are just so deadly to humans and so bad for your brain chemistry because of 
how pressure changes the mm-hmm. oxygenation in your brain. And that's so fascinating because mm-hmm. it's real life dungeon crawling and how real life dungeon crawling kills you so dead. Right, right. Yeah, there was one I was I was reading about um, the other day, a couple weeks ago. See, this is what people like you and I enjoy watching, uh, uh, this, right? Uh, I do want to emphasize that I feel actual compassion for the divers who died and their oh, families. Absolutely, uh, and absolutely. But I was watching this video or, or in, in reading this story about one uh, one such cave sort of diving areas that is so vast, but you only get a few hundred feet in and, and it has a big sign that says, don't go any further. Yep. And in fact, if you're at this point right now, you should turn around very slowly and go back to where you came from. Because if you move too quick, you kick up all the silt and then it's too easy to lose your direction. And you'll be thinking you're going in the out direction and you're going deeper in, and then you can't get out and you run out of oxygen. Yep. And you think the entire time I'm going towards the exit, I'm going towards the exit. It looks the same. It feels the same. My sense of direction is telling me it's the same. And and the, the tricks are being played on you and you get stuck. You go up into this little pocket crevice thinking it's the way out because it's the only way up. And then. Yep. That's, that's exactly it. the one I was reading. That yeah. that exact yeah. one. Yep. Yep. And um, yeah. And, and then, and so they can't even retrieve most of those bodies mm-hmm. just to be. Like I have a ton of compassion for those people as well, because they're not going in there to be, you know, superheroes and, Oh, look what I can do. What they're going in there because this is what a lot of them do as a hobby. Right. And it's just happens to be dangerous and they're human beings and they get stuck. Yep. Um, Yeah. That's, that's sort of, man, that's funny. Though your point about uh, silt reminds me of why I hate dark vision so much. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because yeah. within the safety of a game, uh, the the disorientation of darkness is you know, useful and important to me. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I, I, I'm I understand. Real... I'm gonna lose that fight. No, you know what? But I not, not fact, with you. I mean, with everyone. Yeah, yeah. Else. No, this is a, a a conversation I have like every third session with my teenage players. Yep. In my one group, because and I and I pulled a couple of images. I think I posted them for you in Discord, but I pulled a couple of images that show like oh, here's yeah, a, yeah. Ca- here's the cavern with no light, and here's what players D and D players think that you see if you have dark vision, and it's basically like dim light, and like you could see everything. But here's what you would actually see with dark vision. The way that it's actually written, and the way that the eyes work. Here's what you would really see, and it's like nothing. <laughs> You know, yep. there's so many shadows everywhere. It's not like you have night vision goggles on that are actually tricking your brain into thinking that you're seeing, right? And yep. they're highlighting certain areas based on that's an electronic gadget, right? That's doing that for you. Mm-hmm. Dark vision would not do that. <laughs> yep. You know, presuming the eyes are created the same way that human eyes are created on Earth, but that's a different topic. So right. anyway. <laughs> back to uh, back to the back to the chapter the physical yep. environment so it talks about the, the 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 psychological environment then it talks about the physical environment and it and the different difficulties and and possibilities of 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 complications that you might have cave-ins dealing with darkness um flooding changes in oxygen availability fires different noxious gases, you know, the proverbial coal mine with the canary in it, you know, there was a reason why those things were there. Yep. Um, you know, so, 
Uh, and then and it points out, you know, things like the fact that spells, you know, spells can change the environment. You know, a stinking gas cloud, right, is going to create a problem for you. It doesn't just dissipate. I mean, magically, theoretically, you could say it just dissipates, but it doesn't just dissipate. Now you have fouled the air, right? Now what do you do? Uh, you blame it on the dog. Well, sure. Yes, that's right. Yes. Um, so what I love about this section, especially, is that it has some notes for magical weirdness, but I actually really appreciate how much it sticks to real physical stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's so easy to sort of drift off into, well, I can't necessarily come up with really great mechanics for this natural phys- physical thing, and it would have other physics interactions that I don't want to have to answer for. So mm-hmm. I'll just have everything be magic that winds up rubbing me the wrong way because the world stops being reliable. Right. And so right. I really like when you can you know, present your challenge and your outcomes through, well, that's just physics. That's, mm-hmm. it might be action movie physics, but it's, but it's physics. Right. Yep. yep. That is cool to me. Um, yeah, and and honestly, just the idea of there being certain physical complications that magic cannot just overcome in every case, yep. right? To me, that's very compelling because that's part of that thing where you're challenging the players and the characters, right? Because now they have to figure out a way to get through that if they don't have a particular spell to cast that just suddenly solves that problem. Yeah, exactly. And that leads us to the end of chapter 11. These last several chapters are so much shorter than the first chapters. So, um, uh, yeah, uh, th- they really are, but boy, are they punchy. Oh, they are. Well, cause these are the ones that are um, all they're They're verging closer to the mechanistic explanations, right? Uh-huh. They're yeah. telling you the basis for why you might use a mechanic to adjudicate this item, right? Or here's something to think about if you want to use a mechanic to adjudicate this because it's important, or you can decide it's not important in this particular dungeon, but that's up to you, but you should still think about it. Yep. And then we get to chapter 12. (laughs) Chapter 12. uh, I say again. Generic dungeons. uh, Calling them generic is almost unfair because uh, the text is going to try to... uh, give them some some stuff mm-hmm. um but uh, they they each include sections on their transformation which is to say um what turned them from useful structures into dungeons you would explore uh it's a little weird that they can't just be useful structures that you explore but all right i mean like, uh, uh- I'll give it some credit for trying to do the thing that it said you should do earlier in the book, right? Yeah. It said you should have a reason why and a history for these structures. And so it's trying to, in its, because that's all this chapter is, is it's like five examples of, that's why it's called generic dungeons, because it's trying to give you five examples of different structures you could use as dungeons. Yep. Um, and it's trying to follow its own you know, advice and give you some, here's why this is like this. Yeah, um, and and they're all fine. Um, It's interesting to see the ones that shift into uh, isometric presentation. Yeah, that you see so rarely nowadays. 
Yeah. So for the audience, um, the examples are a, a pyramid, a great pyramid structure, um, a, a primitive temple. That's what it's calling it. A modern temple, m- modern in the uh, fantasy realm, not modern as in like 1960s USA, but modern as in with priests and like a temple to Arathis, for example, or a temple to Sehemin or something. Um, Next is a limestone cavern and then a beehive fort, which is a a weird name just for like uh, something underground that has a lot of little compartments and then a castle. And then that's it. So those are your sort of, um, examples and it gives a little background for each and it has a little keyed section for each one uh to tell you about what's in each section and and they're all it's a one page map and a one page sort of generic key and anyone who has ever watched uh some uh, money python will be happy to know that the castle does in fact sink into the swamp <laughs> that yes. is the pitch yes. right there I like the limestone cavern because it has this uh, interesting waterfall portion of it. Yeah, that's really and nice. So yeah, so they um, it's got three dimensions, and this is where you know you get the Jayquay's treatment, right? Oh, it's so good! It's so good. Um, just it, I I know that I would have a really hard time drawing in the isometric style. Mm-hmm. The the planning of space for isometric maps is not something that I've learned, uh, right. which I think is why it's fallen out of general use for oh, it's so much more makers. difficult. Yeah. 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 But boy, is it pretty. Yeah, it sure and is. It, it tells its whole story. And I appreciate that. Yeah. And the use of the, the, you know, the colors in this book are, are black, white, grayscale, and blue. That That's the color scheme of this book, other than the, a few sort of full color pictures. And so you can imagine this map, it has a river that runs into a, a hillside sort of cavern structure. And then it's, it's sort of a three-dimensional structure. So you see a waterfall and that just the use of the blue tone on this, on this map is just so beautiful. It really is. Um, it's a r- really great example of like three color, a three color drawing that's just brilliantly done. Uh, but the book ends with um, dungeon uh, building uh, mapping symbols, geographic mapping mapping symbols, and an isometric map. Yeah, a blank one. Photocopy. Yeah. 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 yeah so so nice. Um, so, uh, you know, this is a relatively longish episode. Do you have any final thoughts about this book? Well, all of my all my final thoughts here are things I've been saying all along, right? That this book stands up really, really well. It is a, it'd be a great thing to pick up for any new to intermediate DM. Go to go to drive through. Oh, sorry, uh, go to uh, Dungeon Masters Guild. Pick it up. Do the thing, read it. It's not a long read. It's it, you know, you're talking about um, 125 pages, but um, those. But super easy. It's not. Uh, yeah, it's those, not 125 yeah. pages of like hard academic reading. Right. It's it's not dense text. Uh, it's three column format in a very generous font size, and you're going to be reminded of something that has slipped your mind. 
I, right. I just about yeah. promise it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I've basically been singing the praises of this book since we started reading it. So, you know, I think yep. everybody by now can figure out how I feel about it. Yeah. This was one that just really appealed to me and spoke to me the moment I picked it up. Um, I, I had a harder time in a lot of ways appreciating the chapters before the catacomb guide chapter, but mm-hmm. I really wanted someone to teach me how to make a dungeon make some sense. And so, of course, I was going to love that. Yep. Okay. Well, I think that finishes up DMGR1. We are skipping all the way to DMGR5, which is creative campaigning. And that's what we're going to talk about next. Not that we're not going to talk about two, three, and four. We're just going in a sort of, we're going in a weird order because we're going in the order of the books we think we're going to talk the most about. And then the ones we'll talk the least about get get thrown in at the end, just for those of you listening, so that you know what to expect. So tomorrow, on the fifth day of Christmas, we are starting DMGR5, Creative Campaigning. So my good friend and co-host Brandis, where can people find you on the internet? Well, uh, you can find me on Twitter at Brandis Stoddard. Uh, I also write for tribality.com. You can uh, find my personal blog at brandisstoddard.com, and my Patreon is Brandis Stoddard. Sam, how about you? You can find me on Twitter at DM Samuel and on my blog at rpgmusings.com, and of course, all over the Tome Show, where I edit almost all the episodes and am hosting quite a few of them. So uh, check those out. You can also find me on the DMs Guild, where a product that I wrote has just gone Electrum bestseller, and that is the Creed of Oral, which is a little useful guide to uh, get you to add the Cult of Oral to your Rhyme of the Frostmaiden game. So if you're interested in that, go ahead and check it out at the DMs Guild. And if you're not, that's okay too. I, there's totally no, there is no, there is no requirement to purchase anything to listen to the wonderful tones of Brandis and Sam on the Edition Wars podcast. Hey, congratulations on Electrum, though. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I was, I was surprised. <laughs> it's always, it's always shocking to see. Oh, look how good it did. That's good. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. Well, I think that is going to finish it up for us, and so we will see you, or you will hear us tomorrow. I don't.